Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Wallen. Each week on the show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups in order to provide yourself with a better life. These are not the typical Silicon Valley startups where fundraising can be a goal in itself, where people sometimes overwork themselves 90-hour weeks, and where building slide decks is often valued more than building real businesses. On this show, we talk about building software companies, and that can be software as a service, WordPress plugins, Shopify add-ons, Photoshop add-ons, even downloadable software, mobile apps, whatever. There are many, many ways to stair-step your way to a business that can provide you with a better life and a better existence. The common thread over the past nine years on this show is that your product or your company is built around being a human being and having goals around what you want to accomplish as a human rather than the business being the end-all, be-all of all your achievement. There are three main things that we've espoused for the past 449 episodes of this show. It's things like freedom. It's the freedom to work on what you want when you want without a boss breathing down your neck. Or the freedom to go to your kid's baseball game on a Thursday afternoon without asking permission. It's purpose. It's the ability to work on something that fascinates you and it drives you every day to make it better. The purpose of building something that tens of thousands of people get value out of and that makes you feel great and proud of what you built. And it's about relationships, deep, meaningful relationships with your family, your significant other, your kids, maybe even have time for friends. And that's what started for the rest of us is all about. That's what it's always been about. It's the lens through which we view startups. And that's why we say it's for the rest of us. We have a few formats for the show. Sometimes we talk through a topic in detail. We work through an outline of how to do a particular tactic. Sometimes it's purely for inspiration. Sometimes it's to help you grow your business over the next week or two, something you can implement. Sometimes more rarely, we do interviews with folks who can offer advice or inspiration. And other times like this week, we answer your questions. And what I like about answering questions live on the show is not only can I directly help a founder who has a question or a challenge or something they're trying to overcome, but you as a listener can either learn from that thought process, learn from that answer, and hear how someone thinks through hard decisions. Because being a founder is about making decisions when we don't have enough information. It took me a long time to realize that. Being a founder is 70% mental and so much of it is about doing things that are hard, that are scary, and that you don't have enough information to make a 100% correct decision. All of that's a learned skill, and it's something that I hope you've been able to learn from the show over the years. I'm here today with my co-host, Tracy Osborne. She was the founder of Wedding Lovely, and now she's my colleague and friend and program manager here at Tiny Seed. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on. Beyond being program manager at Tiny Seed, and as I mentioned, uh, having run a startup, uh, a two-sided marketplace for wedding services called Wedding Lovely, Tracy's a Python developer, she's a gifted designer and an author. She's written several books that help make tech friendly for designers and design friendly for developers. Is that right? Am I saying that right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, you know, tech is a scary subject and it's been a fun topic to write on. You know, what can I do to help people jump into it? Absolutely. And so all that's available more on Tracy is available at tracyosborne.com. And uh, you will be hearing more from Tracy in the coming months as, uh, you know, we're working on a lot of fun stuff together. So yeah, it's the stuff at Tiny Seed has been so much fun and I'm really happy to be part of the team. Yeah. 
us as well. We lucked out, lucked out of having <laughs> you. So cool. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk through some listener questions today. I know there's um, we have some voicemails and we have some uh, text write-in questions. Typically, voicemails go right to the top, but today I think we'll start with some some emails. Yeah, I know it's funny listening to your previous podcast on this. I was like, ooh, we're gonna switch up the formats. We're gonna jump into one of the written questions. Indeed. Yeah, let's. All right. So let's start with this one from Chris Palmer. He got a co-founder that is an experienced software engineer. And his question, as a designer slash product person, he wonders if there's too much testing. How much time of the software build should go into things like unit testing, snapshot testing, et cetera, for an early stage production product? So he says, Rob, when you had Drip, what did the engineering team do? Yeah, this, this is a good question. And what I like about this is if you're not technical, if you're not a developer, it's easy to discount unit testing. And he's talking about snapshot testing and all the, all the types of automated testing, integration testing. There's so much you can do. And I have seen software as a service companies have to rewrite their entire code base or literally run into major problems scaling because they, they skipped this in the early days. And so, so testing, unit testing in particular, I am such a proponent of, of having 80%, 90%, like really extensive unit test coverage. And so I think if you're, if you're a non-technical founder working with a, a technical co-founder who is saying, hey, it's going to take longer because I have to write unit tests, that part I'm, I'm all on board with. Where it starts to become a gray area for me is when we talk about snapshot testing which is uh, taking a screenshot and comparing it from one build to the next to make sure that things aren't going wrong. Where we talk about like full end-to-end integration testing, like actually hitting the UI, like hitting a web interface and clicking buttons and doing all that stuff. I would love and would have loved to have had all that testing done in all of my startups, but it's very, very time consuming. And that has tended to be where I've drawn the line is anything past unit and some minor integration testings and smoke testing of API endpoints, all that stuff we would build because it's code and developers can get in a flow, they can hammer it out and, and you get this amazing test coverage. You know, I, I used to brag about when we were going to be acquired and then when we were uh, hiring for new developers, I would say we have 2.5 lines of test code for every line of production code. And that some developers realize that's not actually that outrageous. That's probably where around where you should be if you really have good test coverage. But it sounds crazy to a non-developer of like, whoa, haven't you wasted a bunch of time? But, but you haven't. And so for me, the line, that's where I've drawn the line of in a startup where I am trying to move quickly, trying to go for end-to-end UI tests that, that cascade down through everything. I think is overkill. And this is where it can be personal opinion. Now, if I worked for a bank, if I worked at at a Fortune 500 company, I would probably go to that next level because downtime and failures, you know, are catastrophic. You work at Amazon, you work at NASA, you work, you know, there's certain places, medical devices, where you do have to take that testing to the 99.999% non-failure rate. You can't fail. When you're building a startup, you're trying to grow, you're trying to move fast. You can fail, you don't want to, but you can fail a couple percent of the time, 1%, 2% of the time, you know, that where one out of 100 deployments has a bug in it. One out of even, frankly, 20 deployments will probably have some type of minor bug in it that you're not gonna catch, but it's gonna save you dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of developer hours along the way. So that's my take. Do you have, you know, as a developer yourself, do you have a take on it? Yeah. 
It's funny because I'm a, you know, my background is the design and I, I picked up Python programming and I was, when I was building my first few web apps, I never did any testing at all because it was like, oh, why should I do this? I can just, you know, poke through the website and figure things, things out. But a little bit of time spent on writing those tests in the beginning will hopefully prevent any kind of like horribly stressful, terrible moment later on when things go down, when the bug is found and everything, you know, you don't want to have that like happen in the middle of the night. So it's like a little bit of time is going to save you a ton of time later. It's just not going to feel like that in the beginning. Yep. That's a good way to think about it. You know, at a certain point when we hit scale and I believe it was post acquisition. So we had thousands of paying customers. And I think if we had the free plan, it was tens of thousands of, of people using it. And this, this is drip. Of course we did talk about implementing like end-to-end front-end integration testing, or that's not the right word. It's it's the snapshot testing in essence, but it was only going to be for like one or two flows. It was going to be like the sign-up flow and something else critical, you know, like sending a broadcast email because we knew that those two flows people used all the time. And if one of those failed, we had a real problem. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, if I'm going to interrupt, is this, if you look at where the critical flows are when it comes to payments or registration or whatnot, because when you're launching new features later on, you want to make sure that when you you know add those features, you can run those tests and make sure you didn't inadvertently break those flows. Exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, for Chris, the, the original uh, question asker, the thing to think about is how well do you know your co-founder? And does your co-founder tend to be extremely conservative? Does he or she come from Fortune 500 company or a bank or NASA or Lockheed or somewhere where they had to have ridiculous test coverage and it could never fail? Or have they worked a lot in startup environments? And and what's their personality like? Do they kind of take it fast and loose? Do they kind of hack stuff together? They're a PHP hacker used to do it on the weekend and they never did the official stuff and, you know, are they they really tight knit kind of unit testing ideas? Or are they somewhere in the middle? And I, I think that almost counts for a lot. I mean, I, to be honest, I trusted uh, my co-founder Derek uh, a lot in the early days. I said, look, write unit tests. Of course we need them. We're absolutely doing it. But I let him go from there. And I didn't come in and say, oh, we should have this tested and that not tested. And I trusted his judgment that he's conservative enough that he was stressed that things were going to break about the same amount that I was, you know, and he wasn't overly stressed nor, nor too lackadaisical with it. And so it wound up being a pretty good relationship there. Cool. Should we move on to the next question? Indeed. All right. This question comes from Tom, the founder of Tom's Planner. So he started working on this in 2007. And though the current design of the product itself dates back to that year, though it had a significant update five years ago, but it's starting to feel outdated again. So he's looking at doing another redesign. So he says, now I have four designs to choose from. Each has their own strengths and weaknesses. I really like one of them. I decided it'd be a good idea to poll my most active users about us as well. That's where the problem started. The users prefer another design than I do. Even worse, they scored the design that I like the lowest. So now what? He says, going with the majority would make sense, but there's a couple of things to consider. He really likes the other design. The design that other users scored best looks most like the current design that we have now, and I'm guessing that's part of the reason why it's doing so well. People don't like change. The design that he likes most has a timeless quality to it, which he believes, which is important to him, but the users probably don't take that into account, and the users are quite divided over it. So even though there's a winner, no design had a bad finish. Am I inclined to, despite the results of the poll, choose the design I like best and think this most future-proof, but since it is the design that the users like least, I am still in doubt. Any advice? 
Yeah. So this this is a tough situation you've gotten yourself into, Tom. And I kind of feel I kind of feel bad for you because I I feel like I feel like asking users their opinion is um, uh, it's pretty much not something that I would recommend overall. Have you? Did you ever? Because you ran a Tracy, you ran a wedding marketplace, right, for wedding services. So you had literal like consumers, like brides and grooms, who were buying from service providers. Did you ever ask for, like, poll your users for, like, specific opinions like this? I did not for the site itself, but there was an aspect of Wedding Lovely where people could uh, have their own wedding websites. And I let users have the choice of, like, emailing me and asking me for, like, a custom design. And that was a terrible, terrible thing to do. I ended up ripping that out because the, I got overwhelmed with feedback and people were choosing and asking for things that I thought were bad design and didn't reflect the brand. And I ended up actually removing that feature entirely. <laughs> so I'm very strongly in the camp that I would prefer not to talk to my users about designs because as, as Tom mentions, it can make things really complicated and... I also worry about what would happen if you launch a design and it's not the ones that someone wants. And you know, what would happen with the person who voted for the design? What would they feel? Like it's it's a very sticky situation. Yeah. Yeah. People can be very opinionated about things that they're not experts in. Mm -hmm. And that's an issue. Like design is not something that we all have training in. Design, I, I, don't, I don't hire uh, the person down the street to correct my back or to do surgery on my, you know, on my knee when I had knee surgery. I mean, I, I hire people with expertise. I don't go down the street and hire the 15 year old kid to write code for my website. Although he, he probably could, but you know, it, it's like I hire people who have experience and expertise and training and knowledge in the space. And design is, is the same thing. Like the, the fact that a lay person, everybody has opinions, but do they have taste? I think that's really, and it's an interesting thing because I don't want to make it out like being snooty, like, oh, I have taste because I only drink refined wines in these very, you know, pretentious single source origin coffees, which uh, my brother does. And I always make, I say, we well, want to go to the pretentious coffee place. You go to the cheap one, you know, of course the pretentious coffee tastes better, but it's like 15 bucks a cup, right? So if you have users who have, you know, I think uh, if it's all designers and you really want to get opinions and feedback, then do that. I think it's more trouble than it's worth. And I think it will create problems every time because what's funny is Tom said that his users pick the one that's most similar to what they already have because people don't really like change and they don't like using new software. And if you know that in 2007, 12 years ago, that you designed this thing, that design it probably isn't going to last you another 10 years. And you want this one to last you at least another five or 10 years. So if I had been in Tom's shoes, I would not have done this. I've never, you know, we would ask for opinions about, hey, we have some features. What do you think about this? Or what feature doesn't this software do? Like those are interesting things, right? Because those are actual things that they're doing in day-to-day -day business. And they are experts on their own workflow and on their own needs for a product. But asking what color a button should be or how a page should look or showing them three designs for a page, aside from just pure usability things like, wow, I'm totally lost. I can't navigate this. That makes sense. But their opinion on whether there should be drop shadow or not or a font, that's why I hire experts, you know, or, or become an expert yourself, I guess. Yeah, there's, there's another piece of this puzzle that's kind of missing, which is that in a redesign, you also want to be looking at the user experience, not just the interface. And when you're asking people, you're giving, you know, I, it doesn't really say about how we ask for feedback on the design. I'm presuming it's screenshots. And that's leaving out 
how the interaction actually is. And the users might be choosing something that looks like the old design because they don't want the placement of the buttons and how things work underneath to change. So the new redesigns, that's the thing that I struggle with with new designs is trying to figure out how things are gonna work. And so people might be scared about changing the system. And when one is doing a redesign, I think it's important to include how things work and, you know, try to Im improve those flows about how, you know, someone uses the website, how someone signs up or adds their payment, payment information and whatnot. You don't get feedback on those things when you're sharing screenshots. So that could be another thing for Tom to do is do another round of feedback, but not by users, but go create a way of testing out the interactions about how things are working and see if, you know, his new design does better on that aspect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And he did do screenshots. He included a link way at the bottom that has the link oh. to the screenshots. And what's interesting, one of them doesn't work, but the other one says it, he has all four designs and frankly, they're all pretty similar. Like, I actually don't think it matters which one he goes with. I mean, I, so Tom, I mean, my, my advice would be don't do this again because <laughs> having a, trying to do it by democracy, I've never understood the, I think if you have a product, like you should have a pretty strong opinion and a vision for your product, I think. And if you want to do a fun contest or competition around something, that's fine. But if really it's something as fundamental as, as the design of your product, that's where you have to be, you're the founder, you're, you're in charge, you know, and, and you, you can certainly ask some opinions with people that you trust. You can get two or three designers together at your company. You could get, I don't know, again, people who have expertise to weigh in. I even, to, you know, when we were, I was designing um, or having the tiny seed website designed, I asked a couple people that I know that are really good designers and have a really good eye for fonts and this and that, and I trust their opinions, but I didn't, you know, go post it somewhere and ask for the opinions of everyone on my email list because it just, I just don't think that's that productive. Yeah, it's just going to be a lot of noise and a lot of confusion and probably a lot of stress because you're not, it's such a qualitative product. You don't have, don't have any numbers to bring it back down to. And that could be something also, you know, when you're choosing a new redesign, if you can do A-B testing of some sort, maybe on smaller elements, you'll be able to say, okay, this one definitively works better. Like more people are, you know, signing up or doing something that you want them to do because you can tie that to numbers. But with just like asking someone's opinion, you know, about what looks better is is not going to give that much uh, useful feedback. So I hope that was helpful, Tom. Yeah, sorry, Tom. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Our next question is a voicemail about which side to focus on when building a two-sided marketplace. Hey, Mike and Rob, uh, this is Chris Bowles from Kentucky, one of the applicants for Tiny Seed First Batch. And uh, my question is relating to chicken or the egg with SaaS B2C slash B2B. Got a startup concept that I will actually be providing free trial on the B2C side with a very small revenue figure to help support the B2B side. And without going into a bunch of detail, basically I'm in stealth mode right now. So basically, how do you know whenever you recruit the majority of your revenue through the B2B side? or you provide the trial to the B2B side versus beginning free trials on the B2C side. How do you know how do you know who to market to first and who to kind of set up on the website prior to launch to be sure everybody meshes uh, on on game day. Thanks for all y'all do. I've learned a lot. Have a good one. Okay, so 
yeah, it's an it's it's an interesting one, and I. I think the free trial, I think he got a little into the woods with the free trial and that kind of stuff. I, I just think about this as it's a two-sided marketplace and there's a business and a consumer side. And my translation of his question is, which side do I need to bring to the site first? You've built a two-sided marketplace. Yeah, it's, it is a, you know, the chicken and egg problem is, is tough because you need to have enough on both sides of the equation for your website to be useful for both. With Wedding Lovely, it was a, a marketplace for wedding businesses, and that was the primary focus. And there was a consumer side where there was a planning application. But my focus and my recommendation is to focus on the businesses. So, I mean, my personal experience with Wedding Lovely is that I actually launched the site very early on with just a few businesses because I needed to have something online for these businesses to say, okay, this is launched. I see other people using it. And I even told those businesses, like, hey, this is something that's going to be a slow growth thing. You know, in the beginning, we not, might not be able to send them a bunch of consumers, but I was allowing them to list on the site for free. And those businesses actually, by, by focusing on the businesses, they actually helped my marketing a ton because I was able to work directly with the people that were on the website who were with Wedding Lovely and they had their own networks and social media and um, blogs and whatnot. And so they helped build up that consumer side of the business while I focused most of my effort and intention on the business side. But it's, it was a slow slog. It took a, marketplaces take a long time <laughs> to, to build up both sides. But I'm a fan of working. I mean, businesses are also easier to work with by far. And I think there was, there was going to be a lot more um, benefit through focusing on the business side. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I can, I would, I would focus on the business side first in that case, but I would also be trying to, I would basically have a landing page somewhere or a social media account, an Instagram account, a something that is posting amazing stuff and trying to get this consumer side some type of traction so that I don't have to start from zero. Once I have 10, 20, 30 businesses lined up, I at least have an email list of a hundred people or I have a thousand Instagram followers, something there. So I hate to say, I typically, what I say when people ask about two set of marketplaces is focus on one side first and in almost all cases, it's pretty obvious which side you need. Because if you had a bunch of consumers with Wedding Lovely and you're like, all right, I have 5,000 people who want services and you have zero services, you have zero businesses, there's no business there. So you have to bring the businesses first. The challenge is, of course, you have to you have to bring the businesses to to a place where there's you know you don't have any consumer audience. So you could then step back and say, well, should I start a blog or a podcast or an Instagram following or an email list or something that gets you know the uh, brides and grooms to be, and then from there say, well, now I have this email list of twenty thousand. Now I go recruit businesses. That could be one way to do it. That's another way to think about it. But you were starting from a cold stop on both ends, right? Yeah, and you know. Chris mentioned that he was in stealth mode. And I think that's something that should be, I don't know, it depends on what he's working on, but I feel needs to be something that you have to get out of stealth mode so you can start recruiting those people on either side of the audience. Yeah, I would agree. Anytime I hear stealth mode, I, there's like certain yellow flags. I don't know. Red flags is probably strong, but it's like stealth mode is one here. I want to raise money from you. Sign an NDA. I'm building a startup that targets every small business in the United States, you know, it's any business and there's 60 million of them. That's my target audience. You know, the, I mean, there are just certain things that's like, yeah, you're, you're kind of, 
you're making a basic mistake, I think. In almost every case, it, typically the people who make stealth mode work are these really experienced founders. Like Ev, Ev Williams, he can do stealth mode, right? He's done Blogger and Twitter and Medium. And, you know, I mean, just on and on and on. He can kind of do what he wants and break the rules. Steve Jobs could do stealth mode. Like there's a handful, you know, of people that can do it and pull it off and it works. But honestly, if it's your first one and you're trying to figure stuff out, like don't, don't do that, you know, just get out there and you need to start generating interest on both sides of this. And I agree. I would start, I would start looking at, at getting the businesses on board and having conversations of like, if, I mean, and here's the thing I would do is like, if I can bring you whatever it is, if I can bring you 500 customers a year or 10 inquiries a month or, you know, whatever that number is, is this of interest to you? And is this worth $99 a month for you to subscribe? And that's your customer development. You have to do it in a theoretical because you don't have that other side of it yet. And if they say yes, then awesome. Get on the waiting list. There's no commitment now. Let me get your info. And then you, you go to the other side and you either start running ads or you start SEO or you start social or you start whatever it is that's going to bring that consumer side and you start funneling them somewhere. And you don't need to write a bunch of code to do this. You can funnel them to a blog, you can funnel them to a landing page, you can funnel them to just a hacked together WordPress site that has a couple of listings that you've literally put together by hand. I mean, all this stuff can be done with just, it's just hustle. You know, you don't need to go pay 50 grand for developers to go build anything. You're just trying to test it out and you're trying to push it forward a, a piece at a time. This is a great place to do things that don't scale. You know, for those businesses, like what can you do by hand for each of those businesses in the beginning just to start getting the ball rolling? Indeed. So thanks for the question, Chris. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is another voicemail. It's about connecting with other founders to build relationships. And he's referring back to a comment I made a few episodes ago. Hey, Rob and Mike. This is Mike Whitback, uh, one of the co-founders of Uber Writer. Uh, we work in the mortgage space and we built some income calculation software. We're on our fifth year. A business and I've listened to hundreds of your episodes and used, uh, we both, uh, I'm one of the co-founders, David Stom and myself have used a lot of your advice off the podcast um, to help re-guide and redirect our business in uh, very successful ways. So our website is www.uber-writer.com. Hey, my question is this, is um, on episode 444, Rob, I believe you mentioned that you and your wife for about the feelings of isolation have other entrepreneur couples over like maybe once a month or have dinner with somebody just to kind of talk to people that you relate with. So here's my question though. It's probably a w little bit weird and just kind of figure this out is uh, I know I've run in the past where you, you know, introduce yourself to another couple and um, you know, just basically go out to a dinner or a movie or a common event with them. And maybe you just don't kind of hit it off. <laughs> I guess the awkward question is, so when you meet up with these people, is it generally an expectation that you're going to meet again or, you know, do you just kind of let the friendship go or not go where it goes? Uh, how do you handle that? Enjoy the podcast. Please keep it up. Have a great one, guys. Yeah, this, this is an interesting question. I mean, I think, I think there's a couple things. One, for me, when I was, when I was younger, I, I felt like I either needed to be best friends with people or not friends at all. It was this very binary thing. And I'm talking like junior high and then high school. And that's how I was raised. That's how my family did stuff. So it wasn't until probably after college where I realized, oh, having other friends who you just kind of hang out with and aren't necessarily your best friend or, aren't, you know, it's not this binary thing, but you can hang out with them now and again, once a month, once every other month, you see them. It's nice. But 
that's it is a good thing. You know, I think it's a good thing for all of us to have larger networks than just one or two people. Not a requirement, but it's it's certainly made my life. It gives me accessibility to more people, to be, you know, to go see Avengers Endgame when, when I need to, and I'm not just reliant on one or two people. So that's the first thing. Second thing is when we invite people over, we literally just say, hey, we're having a couple people over that we know. We're all startup founders, and we'd love to have you over. And that's the expectation. In addition, we tend to invite two couples or three couples over. And that helps it not be awkward if for some reason there is one of one person in the group can be, you know, whatever, talk too much, not talk enough, be a train wreck, whatever. And that won't ruin the thing because you have six or eight people there. Whereas when it's just kind of a double date, you really are reliant on the personality of the folks around, uh, around you. And that, of course, can be a wild card. So there's strength in numbers there. And there's really no expectation beyond that. And it's we say, hey, yeah, we do this a few times a year and we have people over, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of winds up being the, the situation. And it's worked, out, it's worked out well for us. So far, we haven't had any of those situations where there, it's actually been bad or awkward. We haven't become best friends with everyone, but that's okay. That wasn't the expectation up front. Anyways, neither from us you know, nor the other side. It's just a natural, natural conversation about random stuff. And what's, you know, what's been interesting is some of the funnest conversations have not been about our companies, have not been about our businesses. It's been topics surrounding that. Just that startup founders tend to be creative, driven, motivated, smart people who are perpetually learning. And just being in a room with those kinds of people and asking what shows they're watching, what uh, kombucha you're drinking, what, you know, what's the best coffee place you go to, what, uh, what conferences you like right now, what books are you interested in, what podcasts do you listen to? This stuff's all tangentially related to work, but we're not sitting there analyzing each other's businesses, giving us advice on pay-per-click ads and, and positioning. You know, it's much more this almost social conversation. But what I find is that when I'm talking to, again, interesting, driven, smart people who are, who are shipping things, it just tends to be better conversation no matter what we're talking about. This question really resonates with me because I don't know if you had the same issue when you moved to Minneapolis, but I moved to Toronto about three years ago and it's I left all my old friends behind. And when I moved here, I wanted to jump in and, and make friends and make friends that I think also do the same thing I do so I can have those conversations. And it's been a hard slog. It's really hard to make friends as an adult and you know, tying it to business is also even harder. So I really like your suggestions and I think I learned something, something from this. I'm gonna try to do a little bit more social stuff. One thing I wanted to mention was one of the best parts about, you know, just meeting up with people and, and not having a lot of expectations and just hanging out is, especially if you're a founder, you're probably going to see them at networking events in your city or around the world and, or wherever you go. And just making those like small connections, they're not going to be best friends, like you said, but they're making these small connections is going to be really fun because you're going to see them later on and you're going to continually reinforce those connections over time. And I think it's really great to have these People like for me in Toronto, I have people I see probably it's just simply at events and they've been over to my house one or two times. It's been really fun to start making those, those relationships. And eventually for a few people, it has, eventually it's going to move into, okay, cool. Let's talk business. Maybe I can tell you a problem I'm having, maybe get some advice, but yeah, just, you know, the starting, starting out and, and meeting people for the first time, you know, don't worry about talking business, just see if they're, they're a good fit for you and not everyone's going to be. Yeah, I completely second the notion of how hard it is to make 
friends as adults. And I don't know that anyone ever told me that when I was growing up, but it just seemed like you made friends in school, then you made friends in college. Shortly after college, if you were still around those friends, it was easy. But moving to a new place and relocating is hard. And that's, I'm actually thankful because Sherry's pretty deliberate about wanting to find a community in various aspects of our lives. And that has caused her to essentially just start making lists of people that we meet anywhere. We go to a meetup. I go to do, I did a little talk here locally a few weeks ago or any of the myriad of startup events. It's like anybody we find that's, that's interesting. She's like, get their name, get their email, and we'll put them on this list. And we have this Google doc of people now that is literally just a grab bag of some people we know relatively well and others we don't, but we're interested in, in getting together with them. And we introduce them to one another often which is kind of cool, you know, and it's, it's not like our goal is to get everybody to network, but it, at least there's some value to everybody, you know? Yeah. Think about talking to your 15 year old self being like, when you're an adult, you're going to have a spreadsheet of potential friends, <sighs> you know, <laughs> it's, and you're going to have to invite them over for dinner and, you know, and, and that's, yeah, that's just how it goes. So I just thought of one more thing. Uh, that was another thing when I moved to Toronto was, um, I insisted on, on working from a co-working space. And that was also to get, you know, more business friends, but in kind of a, a, by working together and being around these people, there's a lot of people at this co-working space after the last year or so have like grown into friends and we're talking about business stuff because we're there working together. And that, I used to work at home in an office uh, and this has been really great for me socially. It's been really great for me career-wise just to be around people while I'm working. And then I have that little back and forth chit chat and, and then it kind of grows into like, like who am I going to invite over for dinner and do a dinner party or whatnot. So that's another option that I, I usually recommend to a lot of people who are working solo from home is if there's a place where they can, you know, also try to make friends through um, co-working spaces, you might be able to build those relationships. Yeah. And literally once a month, once every two months, it's not that big of a burden. And frankly, you can couch it as, do you want to come over? We will literally order takeout. Like you don't even have to cook for it. There, there isn't an excuse. I'm talking to the listeners more than, than you, Tracy, but it's like, <laughs> there's literally no excuse not to do this. Cause when we brought this up before, uh, I've had people say, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't think I have time for that. And it's like, we have three kids who go to three different schools. We homeschool one of them. Like I talk about not having time. My wife and I <laughs> both work full time and do that. And yet we do this and it's because we prioritize it. It's not because it's easy, but it's because, you know, we do sometimes we'll do take out or we like we did potluck last time where we provided a main thing that I grilled and then people brought a salad and a this and a that. So it was very little work for us. And that was the other thing. Everybody brought their kids and they all played in our basement. So nobody needed to get sitters because that's another hassle, right? Well, you know, an expense, frankly, is finding sitters who are reliable and all that. So there are ways to do this if if it's something that you're you're motivated to do and that you think is valuable. Yeah. And even, you know, not even just like the, the setting up a whole dinner party, but even just being proactive about inviting people to lunch. You know, maybe you set a personal goal that twice a week you invite a person to go out to lunch with you. And that way, you know, maybe you're already at work. You can just, you know, you don't have to get a sitter for that. It's a very low stress situation. Um, that's something my husband does and he does it way better than me where he, like every week he has a different person he goes to lunch with. And that's kind of how he, you know, creates and also builds those connections. Yep. So thanks for the question. I hope that was some helpful food for thought. So thanks for listening to uh, this week's episode. Hope that was helpful to hear Tracy and I talking through listener questions. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number. It's 888-801-9690. Or you can always email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.